This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is Maylee Chapin. She survived a terrorist attack in Kenya in January of 2019 and captured the experience and her thoughts in the book, Terrorist Attack Girl. I want to read from the back. This is the true story of how terrorism shattered my mind and what I did to survive. On January 15th, 2019, I was trapped in a hotel room in Nairobi for 17 long hours while Al-Shabaab terrorists attacked the property. I was alone, and for most of the time, I cowered on my bathroom floor, texting my family goodbye. I was not afraid I was going to die. I was certain of it. However, thanks to the tireless and incomprehensibly brave men who fought to get us out, led by now-retired SAS operator Christian Craighead, hundreds of us were extracted to safety. When I got back to my family, I didn't realize that in many ways, my battle was just beginning. PTSD made me so miserable that I started to wish I had died in the attack after all. Besides the terrorist attack itself, PTSD was the hardest thing I have ever dealt with in my life. But I wanted to publish this book, which is a collection of my innermost thoughts and journal entries from the attack and the aftermath, so that I could show what trauma really does to a person. Most people don't talk about it because it's ugly and dark, but it's also real, and it affects so many of us. I think not talking about it is a disservice to all of those who are suffering or have ever suffered. So take a look inside my mind and my heart and my soul as I went on the toughest back-to-back journeys of my life. I did the best I could. Maylee Chapin. Thank you for writing it. Cause I think most people that go through something like you did, um, you know, they keep it inside or just like you talk about in here, you see like the event and then where they are and you don't get the in-between part unless it's like a sentence or two. Um, but you talk about all that and you have the italics going on in here and then you have like that, what was after what was happening, um, at the same time. So you're, I mean, yeah, I've never read a story quite like this, um, from a, uh, obviously the standpoint of what happened, but also how you did it, how you did it with those, with those italics and kind of jumping around a little bit, but not, but keeping the store, everything going in the same direction. Um, so I think it's going to help a lot of people that are dealing, not obviously not just with this, because this is, you know, a, uh, a semi-unique situation, but, uh, just any trauma at, at all. I mean, everybody's going to deal with something in life. Uh, yeah. and you just happen to <laughs> deal with a terrorist attack that you, that you lived through and, and, and survived and are now yeah. helping people through this. And then your app. And I want to ask you all about that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, how did you get to Google? Like, how did that work out? Everybody, Google seems to, most people seems like this thing. And then it's in California You think of some like, you know, campus and everybody's playing ping pong or pool in the hallways. Like what's, uh, what was your path to, to Google? Yeah. I, you know, to be fair, I don't think I ever played uh, ping pong there. I did go bowling. They have a bowling okay. on campus. So that's true. Um, yeah, it was, it was a relatively unusual path. I think like most things in my life, um, when I graduated from college, I was a consultant. I worked for Bain and, um, I loved learning that quickly, right? That's what you do as a consultant is you get thrown into the deep end on a, you know, really intense project. And then, you are sort of a brain for rent for six months, and then you get thrown onto another project. And I loved that. Um, but I wanted a little more 
stability, I think. I wanted to get to work on one pro- project or problem for a really long time and, and see it through. Um, so I actually took a total hiatus. I was a preschool teacher for a little while oh. um, and I loved it. I love kids. I wanted to work with kids sort of on a daily basis. Um, hardest job I've ever had. I stand by that. I was done at 2 p.m. every day. So stressful trying to keep all those kids alive, um, but but so fulfilling. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough that Google found me and they were looking for someone with a consultant background to work on kids and family marketing. So it was sort of this perfect marriage of my experience to that point in my life. Um, and that's what I was hired to do. So I went there to do uh, kids and family marketing. And by the time I started my job, which was a couple months later, in classic Google fashion, uh, they sent someone to meet me who was like, that job no longer exists. Uh, now you work on this. So, and everything moves, moves at a million miles per hour at Google. So that's, that's how I ended up there. But I actually worked on, uh, I worked on Android marketing, uh, not kids and family specifically. Oh, interesting. That's so wild that you show up there for one thing and they're like, <laughs> sorry, but we're Google. So we can do what we want. Uh, yep. That yep. is so wild. I went to New York, gosh, it was a long time ago now. Um, and had actually Eric Schmidt walked me through Google in New York. And awesome. I, I came up on the plane and he like carried my luggage. Like he's like, oh, let me wow. carry that for you. I'm like, uh, maybe I could carry that a little bit, but there's right. like a fire pole. I remember, uh, so, and we got on this fire pole and slid down to another floor and it was, yeah, it was pretty office. wild. Yeah. That was pretty yeah. interesting to see how that uh, all went. Um, but interestingly enough, I hadn't thought about this till just now is, uh, we were meeting to talk about how, uh, at the time Google had a large, well, I mean, larger now, but they just essentially had a bunch of cash <laughs> and they were like, Hey, how do we use this to help people? How do we, uh, influence, let's say, uh, human trafficking syndicates, uh, drug cartels, terrorist organizations, like those sorts of things. Like what can, what can we do if we don't really understand what's going on? How can we use this technology and this money that we have, um, to kind of better the world when we look at those things in uh, specifically. And so I just gave him a white paper on it and, and that sort oh, of thing, but cool. it was, uh, but it was interesting to walk through, through Google and have Eric Schmidt be your tour guide. That was, <laughs> Oh yeah, I bet. <laughs> That's that awesome. I thought, that's one thing that I think Google, it does really well. They walk that line of being a startup and a corporation, a mm. massive, you know, really wealthy corporation at the same time in a really interesting way, right? Like every, at once a week you get to go to TGIF, which is actually on Thursday now because they're a global company, but, um, and, and the, you know, Larry and Sergey are often there and they address mm. the crowd and you can stand up and ask questions and they'll answer them. So, uh, it was impressive to be, at a company that has that kind of scale and that kind of access is really interesting that they, that they do it that way. Yeah, I bet. And the California campus, I can only imagine uh, how that is, um, knowing <laughs> the differences between amazing. California and New York and just yeah. the weather. I mean, in New York, you're trapped in the building, which is still yeah. nice, but in California, I can only imagine what it's, uh, what it's like up there. And I was actually asked to go up there and speak a little while ago, but, oh, cool. uh, for something, something came up and it didn't, uh, it did, didn't happen, but, uh, it would have been cool just to see what it's, uh, what it's like, walk around there a little I bit. And it's yeah. not, I mean, it's genuinely not an unusual day. This, this sounds ridiculous, but to, you know, walk outside for lunch, grab a bike, bike down the street, go have sushi for lunch. You're still on campus. You come back, you walk past the lap pool on your way to your next meeting. Like it really, it's such a, it's such a bubble, but it's such an amazing experience. People always ask me, is it like the movie, the, the internship? I think oh, um, I didn't see it. Oh, and I'm always like, 
Yeah. Pretty close. <laughs> Pretty <is>. close. <laughs> yeah. They capture the essence of it. Um, yep, exactly. Yeah. Incredible. Of course, they're listening to this right now, I'm sure. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. My next book, actually, I, I went and did a deep dive into the technology and uh, artificial intelligence and oh, quantum yeah. computing and that sort of a thing. And you know, I hadn't really up until that point, I thought a quantum computer was just a computer that did things oh. faster. And then I saw what one looked like and I'm, oh, wow. It's like, I, I just described it in the book as a, um, a golden Medusa. Cause it was like hanging, you know, and it looks like these yeah. golden wires coming down and they're all like, this. anyway, it's so, it's so wild to think that's a computer. How is this thing even working? That's in, in the blood. Yeah. In the blood. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. It's coming out. Yeah, in I think that is like one of the major like things we need to grapple with of our time. It's no longer this hypothetical, you know, what if computers can compute at a rate that we can't even comprehend, can learn things that we don't even know how they've arrived there. That's today. So it's really crazy to genuinely try to wrap your head around that, not in this like hypothetical science fiction way, but in, you know, if we look at what technology can do today, what do we, you know, how do we feel about that? What do we think about that? So it's pretty crazy. It is so crazy. And it's, uh, and the people that I talked to that I interviewed, um, they all, every one of them said, Hey, I could tell you more, but I want to keep this book out of the science fiction section right. of the bookstore. Yes. And I was like, wow. Yes. Cause what you're telling me is like getting up to the line of exactly. science fiction. And, uh, so what they're not telling me, I can only imagine. Um, yeah, yeah crazy, crazy. But, uh, so how did you, so how did that, how did you end up in Africa then working for, for Google? If you're doing that, uh, yeah, if you're doing that and then were you excited to, to go, had you traveled to other places first as part of this new, this new job or what, uh, what was your path to, uh, to Kenya? Yeah, I, I definitely, I think I made it known that I like to travel a lot. Um, and so I was put on a lot of the projects that included a lot of travel, uh, which I, I loved. I really, I'm, I'm the person who will travel anywhere. You know, they're like a trip's going to this place or that place. You don't need to tell me where I'll go. Um, and so I did, I did a lot of projects that way. So a huge part of my job at Google, I was a marketer, but I think what people don't realize is a huge part of that job is research, right? Mm. Um, I don't, like sit in a room and guess how people will respond to, you know, to commercials or to a new product. Um, I have to go out there and, and talk to them and interview them and work with them and, and see how they respond in, in the real world. Um, so that's a ton of what I did, whether it was a physical product that I was working on or a piece of software. So I had traveled, um, geez, I had been to Shanghai, to Beijing, to Tokyo, um, to Taiwan, Seoul, South Korea. I've been all through the U S uh, a bunch of sort of random suburban places. Um, you know, cause sometimes you need to get out of the Google bubble to really talk to people and see what they think, or you don't want them to just say, Oh, it's Google. So I love it. Or, right. or, Oh, it's Google. So I hate, I hate it. it. Right. Right. Yeah. You want to be sort of having that real conversation, put the branding aside and see what they think of, of the mm. tool or the product. Um, and so then this project, this, the thing that happened that actually was really interesting was that we started to realize in Silicon Valley as a whole, and I'm sure this hits with, with a lot of people, um, that there was this backlash to technology, especially in the US, right? So um, we've always thought of, of phones, computers as these really helpful, connected devices that empower us to do a lot more. Um, so why are people deleting their apps? Why are they getting flip phones? Why are they, you know, talking about wanting to get away from these things? And the truth of the matter is it's because of the way the products are designed, right? They're designed to create dopamine hits that are hard to 
are hard for us to self-regulate like an addiction. So we come back over and over and over and over, even once that experience is no longer serving us, right? It can actively be negatively affecting us and we still have trouble self-regulating and stepping away from that. And so the response tends to be very extreme because, okay, if I can't, if I have this phone and I can't regulate the way I use it and it makes me feel really bad, then I don't know, delete all the apps, right? So that I can't or, or get a flip phone so that I can't because the, the response has to be almost as extreme as the input, right? Mm -hmm. That's controlling that reaction. So you can think about it from a philanthropic perspective. Oh, we want people to be happy with the way technology makes them feel. Um, it would be lovely if that's really where it came from. But the truth of the matter is, um, it's, it's that, and it's the business side of it, right? If you, uh, delete all your apps, then the companies who make those apps are losing money. Right. Mm -hmm. And it started to become a very real phenomenon and a noticeable impact on a lot of companies, bottom lines. And so the question in Silicon Valley at the time was, what do you do? Right. The focus had always been, you know, we call it the engagement economy. Everybody's competing for five more seconds of your time. And that's what all the metrics have been, right? How many more eyeballs can we get for five more minutes a day? And of course, that eventually has really negative ramifications. And we had arrived at that sort of inflection point of, uh-oh, people don't like the way this makes them feel. Something mm -hmm. radical has to change. And so the question was, what do you do? And uh, the question became, which was really interesting to work at a tech company at this time, how do we get people off their phones? How do we get them off their computers? Which is a crazy thing to work, work on from inside of a company like Google. Um, but that was the goal. How do we get you to put that device away when it still feels good so that tomorrow when you come back, you're like, man, I love this thing. It's so helpful. Let me open it up and, you know, not want to throw it out the window, <laughs> yeah. which I think we can all relate to, right? It's happened to all of us, that feeling to just like, I've got to get away from this stuff. I've got to unplug. Yep. Yep. I'm actually thinking of uh, plugging my phone in, like just keeping it char on, on the charger yeah. in yep. my office and yep. not taking it with me. So I have to go like an old landline yep. back in the day and I have to go to it to use and then have another yep. phone that I walk around with so that I can right. you know, text my wife and call in the yeah. kids and just have that, 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 that connectivity to, to them in that circle, yep. but everybody else like, okay, yeah. I have to sit down at a desk and go through yep. it like I would in the old days. So I think that's, I'm headed that direction just because yeah. there's so many, there's, there's so much happening right now. And then for our little guy, uh, there's a, let's see, our little guy's 11. Um, wow. but the kids are like, you know, they share those TikTok videos and there was an article in the wall street journal this weekend, I think it was called TikTok brain. And, uh, so I printed it and I made him read it and printed uh, it. Nice. Yeah, I printed nice. it. Yes. And I took mm -hmm. out, like, you know, I took out the photos and the advertisements and put it in a word document and then I, yeah. I printed it and gave <laughs> it to him and he had to read it. And now he's, uh, he, he, there, he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to delete TikTok. Okay. Nice. It's a good, it's a good idea, buddy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's so hard cause they, I mean, that's how they communicate with their friends and they do, yep. it's, uh, we wouldn't have even gotten him a phone, but all the, I mean, that's how they're talking and that's their social thing, especially during COVID when we're in the house and it was like, rah. And a lot of kids will say it's how I do schoolwork, right? Like, and I have to get my homework assignments and I have to connect with my peers uh, for my projects. It's, it's really hard. I think this is a, this is an insane time for parents to know the negative impact it can have on development and the positive impact it can have on development and then try to regulate that for our children when it's difficult literally to regulate it for ourselves. Oh yeah. So, I feel great. it. I feel it. You know, right? I look at like, Oh, how many more people I'm mean, looking at the comments oh, yeah. or whatever. Like 
because I want to engage with people because today I can help build, you know, I can help build your, build your business through the, right. the that engagement. You couldn't have done that 30, 40 years ago. But, uh, but at the same time, I find myself doing it when I don't need to be doing that. Exactly. Uh, and so that's why I want to, I think this is my year to get organized and, and figure that, that side right. of things out. But it's hard. And people you know. think that too. They think it's straightforward, right? Like, oh, I'll, I'll regulate my time on it or, or I'll leave it charging in another room. And then you can feel the pulse still, right? You or you, can, you know, you hear something vibrate and you're like, yeah. what's that? My I get that in my pants? leg, in my pant right? pocket, and there's nothing bone in there. Phantom. And I yep. feel it. The phantom. Yep. It's, oh. And every time it happens, vibrate. I'm like, son of a. Totally. Yeah. Right. It's oh. crazy. And it's become, yeah. So, so the answer to your question is we saw that, that resentment building yeah. in the U.S. Um, and in a lot of sort of Western nations that are, are similar to the U.S. Um, but we didn't see it in a lot of other countries. Mm. And the question broadly was, why is that? We could come up with, you know, I could sit in a room in Mountain View, California and come up with a hypothesis about why that is, but um, that doesn't really serve us. Let's get boots on the ground and go talk to people in those countries and ask them how they feel about their devices and why. And so the the two main countries that we had identified for that research project were, um, I was gonna go to Mumbai, India, and then Nairobi, Kenya, um, because we had research counterparts from third-party companies on the ground who could get us interviews. But literally, like that was the project: go into these people's homes um, and try to understand why they don't want to throw their phone out a window. Why don't you have those phantom vibrations? You know, why are why do you not find yourself at the dinner table with your kids, thinking, God? why am I on Instagram? Like, how did this happen? I'm sitting here with my children. Right. Or, you know, why am I checking my email? Um, and so that was, that was what I went there to do is to try to try to unravel that question. Did you find anything out from your, uh, from the, the, the India time before you got to to Kenya, I guess? What did you, you I had a whole day in Kenya where I learned a lot too, you know, before everything went sideways. Um, yes, I, I think the, there were two components to what I heard um, the theme that I heard in India across socioeconomic backgrounds, across like totally different types of families, even immigrant families within India, um, was that there is a focus on balance in all things. And that was something that came up all the time. It came up with how much I work, how much I use my device, how much time I spend with my family, physical fitness, right? Like, you know, I, I wake up and I do yoga and then I get on the train to work and I play games on my phone the whole way. And then I work and then I come home, I play games the whole way back. And then I put it away and sit down to dinner with my family. Um, and there's just this built in element of, of balance. It was amazing. And it, it sort of came naturally to the families we spoke with in India. It was amazing. Andrew, I think I need to move to India. I'm working on my balance. It's uh, and and I need to start working on my fitness because I've been doing a lot more typing uh, for the last couple oh, of years than I've been doing yep. working out. So um, yep. yeah, once again, I, I, this is my year to get organized. But I said that last year. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> I said that last year also. But this year is what time that I really mean it. I've actually taken some actual steps. Like merchandise stuff is outsourced now, so it's out of our right. kitchen. My wife's not printing labels uh-huh. and doing and sending everything out. The whole house boxes everywhere, merchandise everywhere. Wow. So that's out now. So that was a good first step. Yes. And so you need to take a few, a few more of those as, uh, as I continue to work on this, this balance, but I'm going to remember that about the the people in India. There was just this sense of, and it was almost, a. it was hard to get our questions across in a Mm. way that would land because it was like, well, I don't understand when your device is in the other room, aren't you thinking about it? Isn't it distracting? Don't you want to see if you've missed a call or text? And they were like, what? I'm sitting at dinner with my family. Why would I be thinking about my phone? Oh, that's great. 
Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're like, that is great. I want to feel like that. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Oh, uh, right. I might go to India. Uh, I've been there. Maybe it's been a long time. Uh, gosh, I was in Mumbai and Gosh, what, 1993, I think. So it's been a, oh, wow. it's been a long time. Been a long yeah. time. Um, yeah. But I would love to love to go back. I'm in an amazing place. Oh, my gosh. I love being there. Yeah. And then the thing, the story that sticks with me from, from Nairobi was different. Um, and this was from a, a very impoverished family mm-hmm. that we spoke with that, uh, that it was a mother that we were speaking with. Uh, you know, she, I think she had four kids, two of her littlest were twins. They were sitting there. They were super cute. Um, and she recited the story very emotionally. It was really raw when she talked about it. And she said, um, my phone is my lifeline. That's what it is to me. Right. I don't, I don't have extra data. I'm not on Facebook, right. Data is expensive. Phones are expensive, but this is something I have to have. My son was very sick a few months ago and, uh, and I couldn't afford to take him to the doctor. And so I used a tiny bit of data to search his symptoms and I found a, you know, a, a recipe for a medicine that I could make at home and applied sort of a, 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 a like form, formula that I created onto his forehead and, uh, and his fever broke and he lived. And, you know, whether it was factually true or not true or scientifically accurate or whatever, the point was that that was what her device was. Started. It was like quite literally a lifeline and it hadn't gotten to this this exaggerated place of extreme connection, even when we want privacy, mm. um, this thing that felt like it could interrupt your life instead of improving it. It was yeah. solely this thing that could help you in times of need. And that was really, really moving. Wow. And what, what an incredible conversation to have when a day right. later, essentially that <laughs> phone becomes your lifeline. In, oh, good way to put it. Yeah. In a, uh, in a, in a situation that is just, I mean, I mean, if you, I mean, to capture it in here. I mean, well, we saw it on the news, especially those of us in you know the security field and that sort of thing, special operations. Of course, we see that the, the lone person going in in his jeans, like, who is that guy? What's that black beard patch? And then now <laughs> to know to know him now is so is incredible because you, as you know, so humble and like uh-huh. an amazing person. Um, but at the time it's just this person that like it goes in on his own. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. So we knew about the event from that side of it, just like larger and Al Shabaab. Okay, what are they doing? But not from this perspective, like no one's told this perspective and very few people have ever told this perspective ever. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, it's so, so moving. So that having that conversation and then having this phone be your lifeline and then also not having it go down during that with explosions going off and everything that was going on and to maintain that, that connectivity. Um, but before you went, was there any sort of like a brief from, from Google as far as like, Hey, here's some security things to be worried about. You're going to India, you're going to Kenya, here's some things to do and not do. And okay. Or like a, you know, some sort of PowerPoint you have to go through before you travel or anything like that. Was there anything like, like that? Because when you talk about connecting with Melissa, like she sounded like she was with it. Yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. I literally just like two weeks ago, sent her a signed copy of the book. She's, she's so amazing. Um, but, um, before, before I traveled to India and Kenya, um, I hadn't heard directly from Google security. So I was a little bit, I was really excited to go, but I was a little bit nervous. It was my first trip where I was the only um, employee from Google who would be traveling. And so I was just trying to figure out, you know, what are, when we travel to, to different places, what are the norms? Do I get a driver or do, you know, how, how right. do we work all those logistics out? Um, is there anything I need to be thinking about or concerned about? And so I actually uh, sent an email to the security team and asked, you know, this is my itinerary. Um, what do I need to know? Mm. And so. Um, 
there's a, a side point in here that, that people love to talk about. Um, I actually had booked a different hotel. I had booked the Kempinski in Nairobi um, and uh, got word back from the security team that it there's a latent but credible threat of terrorism in Nairobi, um, low threat to us, but just for good measure, uh, the Kempinski doesn't have enough setback from the road. So you might want to want to move your res- reservation. And so I canceled it and booked the Deuce D2, which obviously is one of those moments that you think back on that just changed. I literally, you know, something that took me two minutes that I did online changed the entire trajectory of my life, which is, is kind of crazy. Wow. Um, were they both like from us other than the standoff from the street, were they both like you know, the five-star hotel is nice, kind of comparable. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Um, and, and well-known and, and places that, um, very, you know, um, d- different celebrities or former presidents, things like uh-huh. that would stay. Um, so yeah. And, and honestly not very far from one another either. Wow. They're very, like very close together. So, uh, yeah. So that moment was crazy, but they, they sent me a short briefing document, um, that basically said, um, the biggest threat to you is like road accidents or petty theft. Don't mm-hmm. walk alone at night. Don't, you know, flash your valuables, things like that. Um, and then they booked my driver. So that's how, you know, and my, my driver becomes such a central character yeah. in my experience. So not a character, he's a real person. Right, right. I know it's, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> so talking to know. him the day is, is the day of when you're talking yeah. to him before you go and take your, your nap in the hotel room and then get, you know, woken up the way you do. But, um, so you're talking to him and is that the first time that you really thought, uh, more about terrorism, uh, and Al-Shabaab and where are we in the world? And what are the, like, it seems like he, that, that became like a central point of your conversation with him and something that you, uh, that you were interested in talking to him about. Yeah. I mean, I, as I said, I, I love to travel. Um, I'm obviously very chatty. I love to talk to people. Um, so it was not unusual for me to start asking, you know, whether it was a colleague who worked there or, or a driver um, to tell me about their experience living there. And uh, very quickly, we arrived at, at this topic of, of terrorism and, and, you know, Westgate Mall and the university and this history of, of Al-Shabaab attacks in, in the area. And I felt I felt so naive in that moment. It's hard for me to put it into words to think sitting so far outside of the security community, so far outside of the special operations community at that time and sitting in his car and thinking, I didn't, I didn't know there were terrorist attacks outside of the middle East. To me, those were synonymous with, you know, Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq and and places like that. And I had no idea that that's something that not only happens here, it happens regularly and is a topic of conversation. Um, and you know, yeah, I, I thought back a little bit to, oh, okay, latent, but credible threat, but it seems, it seems a bit more acute than that. It seems to be very much a topic of conversation here. And I think I wanted to understand. I just felt, I felt so naive and I just asked, you know, I don't know anything about that. Will you explain it to me? How does that feel? What does it look like? What's the history? Um, how do you live under that kind of threat on a daily basis? When we know that, you know, as I know now that in each of these attacks, the majority of the death toll is Kenyans, right? So it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it was, it was humbling. It was, it was really moving to hear him say that and to talk about it so calmly and so casually. It was just crazy. 
And then, so you say goodbye to him and go up to your hotel room and gonna take a take a nap. Is that was, was that after you kind of like you just talk about this topic with him? Just talked about and it. And then you yep. go in, pass the lobby, go on up, and yep. and then like gonna take a couple hour nap or something. Yeah, yeah, I was jet lagged, and I just thought um, I'll lie down until I meet up with with the research team tonight. And um, man, that's one of those moments that. In retrospect, I think for a long time, the way I thought about that moment was how unlucky could I possibly be? I was supposed to be at the Kempinski. I was supposed to be at this meeting. You know, there were a million things that that should have ended with me not sitting in the middle of a terrorist attack. And yet somehow, against all odds, that's where I end up. And I think now when I look back on it, I think, how lucky was that? 20 minutes later, arriving at that hotel 20 minutes later, and I'd have been in that blast, you know, just having the thought uh, we had just gotten lunch. He had found a a great place and we had stopped for lunch, which I really appreciated. But if, if he hadn't, you know, I would have, I would have been really hungry and I would have gone down to the cafe where the suicide bomber detonated. Right. There are a million ways that I should have died and I didn't. And so it's just, it's one of those crazy perspective shifts that happens over time. Um, but today I'm really thankful that somehow I was safely in my bed when, when the suicide bomber detonated his vest. It's, it's crazy to think about. Wow. You know, and, and exactly what you just said there, you meet at the end because people know the end because you're sitting here. Thank yeah. goodness. Um, but at the end here, you, you, there was another American in the hotel and I marked it, <laughs> I marked it here. And, uh, cause it was, it was such a cool thing that you guys talk about when you meet up in the lobby. Um, but, uh, gosh, so I have too many notes. I have so many notes because it's, (laughs) it's so amazing. And oh, right here. Um, and so you meet, you meet Tim, uh, and, uh, you say, let's see, do you think we will always remember this as the best day of our lives or the worst? He didn't even hesitate. Both. He said calmly, self-assuredly. It was like, he was a terrorist attack, bro. (laughs) No nerves, no concerns. And he already knew exactly how we would process. Uh, I think back on that moment all the time It's amazing to me just how right he was. But just like you said right there, I mean, that's incredible. And that's right afterward. Um, I mean, still in shock probably. And uh, I mean, what an incredible ordeal. But uh, yeah, all those things like minute here, minute there. It's it's incredible to think about. And it's it's the same. I mean, you touched on it, right? Like to think that Christian Craighead ends up coming in and saving us that day by like crazy happenstance. It's just everything about it. it. like what if he hadn't been there? Talk. What if he hadn't been, what was he having lunch or shopping at the time? Right? You know, and- if he hadn't, I mean, my truly, 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 my belief is that if he hadn't been there, we'd be dead. We'd, I would not be sitting here. I would not be having this conversation. That is truly my belief. And when you look back at Westgate mall, 17 hours would have been way better than what happened, right? Westgate mall lasted days. Yeah. And I could not have, I could not I can tell you, I wouldn't have survived days. I was, my sanity was, was shattering in that place. And, and it was really tough. And so it's everything about it. I, I say now people ask me, how would you describe it? And I say, reality is stranger than fiction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just that's the only way to put it right. If he's not there, if I don't arrive at the time I arrive, um, if I'm too hungry, if I step out of my room, when I hear the blast, um, you know, if I run and panic, if Melissa doesn't answer the phone and tell me what to do, um, it's, it's every single one of those. If one of my phones was dead, it's everything. So it's, it's crazy. It is so 
So crazy. And uh, yeah. I mean, it's like I said, such an emotional read. Even that one, I had trouble reading. Um, but, and that's yeah. not even one of the emotional ones. Um, you know, one of the more emotional ones. Um, yeah. But, uh, and then that title, um, you talk about choosing the title, Terrorist Attack Girl. Um, you, how did you come up with, I mean, obviously how you came up with it, but um, how did that become okay? Oh, so this is actually interesting. I don't talk about this often, but I really went back and forth on the title. Um, the other title I considered was Prolonged Exposure, which was the name of the, the PTSD treatment that I went through. Um, but I also just thought encapsulated the whole, like everything about it was this prolonged exposure to horrible trauma. Um, but this was the name that I always had in my head. And like, I think in my, in my heart, um, and maybe prolonged exposure is better for like marketing or something, but this title to me, I wanted to call it terrorist attack girl because I felt like, and I think this is another thing people don't always talk about with trauma. I felt like my identity had been robbed from me. I, I was a Google employee. I was, you know, engaged. I was an overachiever, it, all these ways I would have described myself beforehand. And then one day goes by in my life one day and I walk out and I'm no longer any of those things. It doesn't feel like I'm any of those things. Now, every person who talks to me, every interaction I have is centered around this one day in what had been, you know, 26 years of my life, 17 hours became the central focus of every single conversation I had, of every experience that I had, of, of what was happening, of neural pathways that had been created and broken in my brain, everything centered around one day. And so I had this new identity that was terrorist attack girl. She's that girl who was in the terrorist attack, right? Whether I was at Google, whether I was at home, that was my identity and I didn't choose it. And that was really hard. I thought, I don't want to be this person. I want to be that person. I liked Maylee. I liked being an overachiever. I liked being a Google employee. I, I don't want this to define me. And finally, I hit a point where I said, it does. It, that day changed everything in my life. It changed the trajectory of every single thing in my life, except for the man I love, who I loved before and love now, but everything else changed. And I can either be mad about it or I can take control of it. So I'm going to be terrorist attack girl and I'm going to use it to try to help other people. I'm going to be terrorist. I'm out there talking about the terrorist attack and how we process trauma and how we can get better. And I'm going to use that experience to make meaning that is an identity that I do want because that was all that I could do. I couldn't take it back. I, I would have if I could have, but I couldn't take it back. So yeah. I had to learn how to wear it as a mantle that I could be proud of. Wow. No, it's so powerful. And like I said, it, 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 everyone's going to get knocked down somehow. Very few people are going to be trapped in a hotel room with being attacked by terrorists. Um, I hope, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> but the other side of this is, I mean, it, is that people, everything's relative. And, yes. you know, when you're going through and you have a bad day or whatever's happening, or you, you can be like, wait, you know what? Guess what? I'm not, I'm not stuck in a hotel room with bombs going off and people trying to kill me. Um, sure. you know, and you know what? I can do this. I can do this other. So you're helping people even through that. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I know so. Um, and that's why I hope people pick this up because it's, it's not, I mean, security professionals, uh, of course, have an interest in people in special operations. Have, I mean, obviously that's professionally, but, uh, but personally, you know, it's not just for those people. This is, uh, it's such a personal experience. You're going to be, you're helping so many people that have never had a touch point with any of those, those communities. Um, just because, you know, we're all going to, yeah, we're all going to get hit. Um, but, uh, I'm like, you know, every human, every human, even a sociopath knows pain, right? Every human being knows pain. And what's wild about pain 
is that it causes us to feel alone. We feel alone when we really hurt, we feel alone. And that is the craziest time to feel alone. If you think about it, because that's, that's the most human experience to feel pain. And so I always, that's, that's always my goal with the book is if, if when we feel pain, we can look outward and feel connected, we're going to heal so much faster. And I hope for people when they read terrorist attack girl, I hope they can remember that because we do have this tendency to isolate and to, to feel more alone when we're in pain than ever before. So, but, but everybody knows pain. That's something that, that is unifying. Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. And, um, and you write it, it's like written like a, almost like a journal. Um, and, uh, which, which makes it so, yeah, which makes it so, so personal and so much more, so much more powerful rather than having yeah. like the one personal paragraph and then everything else, you know, kind of a, a more strategic overview of what happened that day. I mean, you're, you're right there with us in, in that room. Um, I'm going to read a couple, I'm not going to read all of these because I want people to get the, get the book and I, I don't want to keep you here for 10 hours. <laughs> you know, oh. <laughs> I want to, uh, I want people to get this book and read it, but it's for people that are watching or people that are listening, if you're listening, I have like, I don't know, a hundred yellow stickies in here with, with these poignant paragraphs and sentences that I wanted to, wanted to talk about. Um, but I'm just going to uh, read a few of them and then everyone can go out there and get this and, and read it. Um, but, uh, so you're sleeping, I mean, you're taking a nap, boom, you hear something. And, um, did you know it right away what it was, or did you have to visually see it before you were like, okay, now I know what this is. I couldn't have told you from my bed that it was a suicide bomber. Um, having never seen that, it's hard to wrap your head around, even when you are looking at it for the first time. Um, but I knew, I knew that it was a terrorist attack. I, I mean, it, as you said, I had literally just had that conversation that morning of, you know, we're all just waiting for the next one. We know there'll be another one. And the bomb was so close. There was just no way to explain explain it in my head. Um, even though I really desperately wanted it to be anything but that. Um, so I think, I think from my bed, I probably could have said it's a terrorist attack. Um, but I didn't know it was a, a suicide bomber until I looked down on the scene. And that's something that Tim didn't see. He heard it, the other American in the hotel, but didn't you, I mean, you're right there when you look and you're right. Just as my brain started to process how very real that scene outside my window was, I looked left, saw two large men dressed in dark matching outfits coming around the corner and into the courtyard with AK-47s. I knew immediately, instinctively even, that they were not police. Perhaps it was because they were not shouldering their guns but firing that I knew they were terrorists. Perhaps it was because they passed through the blood splatter of their former friend without so much as looking around. Perhaps it was because they were walking, not running, and moving toward the explosion, not away. Perhaps it was the look of apathy and determination on their faces, which betrayed the fact that the bomb had not taken them by surprise as it had the rest of us. I knew instantly these men who were complete strangers to me were here to kill me, to kill all of us. I mean. Yeah. So you see that you process yeah. all of that so quickly. That's that like sixth sense instinct. Uh, I think even if you hadn't had that conversation in the morning, just as a yeah. human being, like there's something, there's a reason that we're all here alive today. Some of our ancestors at some point had this sixth sense and we're good at a couple of things uh, so they could continue the bloodlines and we could be alive here today. Yeah. Um, so you instinctively yeah. know uh, without yeah. ever having studied security, never having been, had a touch point with that world, you know, and gosh, that is powerful. 
And I think that was the problem was that was the end of my instinct. Like I, I didn't have any training for, okay, you've recognized the situation. Here's what you do now. Um, that was all, that was all I could get to. So I remember this feeling of like literally being frozen to the spot of, you know, these people are here to kill me. They're going to, right. Cause what do I do? I have no idea. Um, so it was the only thought was say goodbye to your family. That was it. That was the end of sort of my, where my instincts could lead me. Wow. And you get on that phone and once again, that lifeline, you start yeah. texting family, fiance, yeah. uh, eventually the, you get in touch with someone at the, at the embassy and then you get in touch with Google security, Melissa. Have you met Melissa by the way, in person? Yes, I did. I met her, um, for one lunch when I got back to California after long, long after everything. Um, and I have a lovely photograph of the two of us standing there and, and yeah, it was almost difficult. I think probably for both of us to come up with words, like having experienced that together, you know, me physically being there and her being on the phone. Um, she was my lifeline. And, and I think that's in a, in a hypothetical sense, that's why she does the job that she does, but it's rare that, that you're really, truly going to be someone's lifeline in that capacity. So I think that was probably, um, one of the defining days of, of her career. And I would just like to say she crushed it. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. I mean, it, it it's a movie, but it's real. <laughs> like, you know, if it was a movie, you'd be like, ah, oh, these two women, like, okay. You know, but then the guy comes yeah. in and saves the day, I, you know, I, okay. <laughs> but it's real. It's real. And it's real. Yeah. Every moment of it. And, and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't write it to be interesting to anyone else. I, I wrote it because I couldn't stop seeing it over and over and over when I got home. And, uh, and, and I was journaling about how difficult it, it was to, to, to try to process what had happened. And, and so I, it, that's the thing as I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to paint a picture in the book of like, you know, it's crazy because then this happened. I literally, it was like, you know, then then I called her and she said, barricade your door, right? Like that's what happened. That's where it started. And so, um, it, it is again, just reality is stranger than fiction, right? I, I couldn't, I couldn't make that stuff up. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's incredible and it, and it's, I mean, and it obviously so, so personal, so powerful. Um, what was Melissa's background that got her to that, to that point? I actually don't know much about her background. Um, let's leave her mysterious she, then for the movie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there you go. Okay. Mm. I, I could tell you, but then yeah. I have to <laughs> that's it. Yeah. That's it. Um, yeah. I don't know much, but, but uh, I think that, she, I think that she's one of those people. And I think um, Christian actually touched on this a little bit in a podcast that he did um, that some civilians can really step up in the moments that matter the most. And it wasn't just about her telling me what to do. It was about the fact that she was this, this unshakable calm voice that was literally in my ear. So it was not only about trying to say, Hey, barricade your door, turn your lights off. It was about saying, Hey, um, take a deep breath. Can you process what I'm saying? Uh, find something in your room that's green and describe it to me. It was somehow she was so aware of, of both sides of what I needed and, and delivered them so effectively. It was, it's sort of extraordinary to think about. Yeah, no, it's incredible. All the, all the different pieces that, uh, they come together throughout this, this whole yeah. ordeal, this 17 hour ordeal that, uh, was really just the beginning 
for you yeah. in this in this brand. You make that really clear um, in in this as well. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll read a couple more here because, like I said, they're all so powerful. Um, but uh, I think a lot of people are trying to imagine themselves in your shoes and what they would do and how they react afterward and all that stuff. And then thinking about maybe traumas that they've been involved in or times they've been knocked down. And, and, uh, but you write this, you write, um, there was no one to stop them. Their plan was too good. They had us trapped like animals and they would come through and systemically execute us room by room. It was the first moment where I was no longer confused. I was completely certain of what was happening. The terror took over. It gripped me from the inside. My heart was beating so hard, it was legitimately painful, and I felt like the terror might strike me dead on the spot, might cause my heart to explode before the terrorists even made it to my room. My mouth was completely dry, my lungs felt like a hand had reached into my chest and placed a vice on them. I couldn't breathe, I couldn't think, I couldn't move. The terror had taken over completely. There was nothing strong or brave in it. I was stripped of everything, and all that was left was pure terror and adrenaline and a desire to flee. But there was nothing to do, there was nowhere to go. I couldn't run or scream or hide, they would find me. It would find us all. I recognized, even though I wanted more than anything to reject it, that my life was over. They would win. They already had. Yeah, it's it's so it's so emotional. Uh, sorry to hear you read that back. Um, it's 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 so humbling to to be here and to talk about this story. But um, you know, it's still it still hits hard and, and brings those feelings back, um, when I go through it. And I think this is the point that I try to make to, to people sometimes when I talk about it, um, as much as I hate to say this, terrorism is extremely effective, right? That's what they're trying to do. They are trying to make us scared to live, scared to breathe, scared to leave our home, scared to travel. Um, and that's why, as you said, that moment was the beginning, right, of, of what lasted far longer than 17 hours. I spent 17 hours thinking I would die at their hands. And then I got home and I wanted to die at my own hands. And that was, that was the long reach of what they had done. I was so shattered um, having been exposed to evil like that, that, that it really altered my perspective on everything, my perspective on life, on what I believed on good and evil. Um, and, and that's, that's why it's so effective because those terrorists were long dead and I was still struggling. I still didn't want to leave my apartment. I still was afraid to go to the grocery store, you know? Um, so it's, it's effective, but at the same time, that was that battle that I was fighting. I, I, in that moment that you just read back, it felt like they won, but they didn't because I walked out of there. And then again, you know, every morning that I would get up and fight that desire to, to give up, I was beating them, right? I was winning day in and day out. And that was, I'm a very stubborn person. And that was a big part of what kept me going was this idea that like, I just couldn't stomach the idea of them winning. I just couldn't. Yeah, there's something that you write back here, not quite at the end, but close to it. And it's, uh, it's a couple. Yeah, here it is. You say it's, uh, it's just one sentence or two sentences. Uh, it's March 4, so almost two months after. And only today did I deeply and truly realize I'm going to be okay. Until now, I never believed it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I felt like, I felt like they had me, you know, a lot of, a lot of days I felt, I think the, I think the majority of what I felt when I got home was guilt. Um, guilt that I couldn't put it behind me. It was so strange to be like, yeah, this was one day in my life and it was horrible. And Christian Craighead came and saved the day and I'm home and I'm back with my family and I have everything that I could ever want or need. And yet all I can think about is that I don't deserve to be here, that I should have died, that I would, that my family would be better off, that, that I would be better off if I had died in that attack. Um, and then I felt guilty. Why can't I appreciate what I've been given back, what Christian Craighead gave all the survivors back that day. Um, and, and, and the guilt is a symptom and that's what I couldn't see at the time, right? Like when you look at PTSD, um, it makes you feel guilt. It makes you feel shame. It tells you that you're not enough. A depression is often, uh, a sort of an additional accompanying comorbidity or symptom of PTSD. Um, and it wasn't until my therapist told me those things are temporary and they're normal and we can fix them. That was the day that I thought, oh my God, okay, okay. If I can really try to believe that this is not my new life, these are symptoms and they're temporary, then I'm going to be okay. Wow. And now you're helping so many, so many other people through this book and your app and, you know, talking oh. about it and it's, it's just incredible, your, your, the strength. Um, but what you talk about right there with PTSD is something that I hear from a lot of veterans, exact same thing, that, that guilt, that shame, that depression, and then yeah. they throw alcohol in there, they throw maybe some marital yeah. problems in there, they throw some ambient Absolutely. in there, um, yeah. <laughs> that sort of a thing. And it was this caustic cocktail. Um, yeah. but you hear that, that often. And, and it's, it, it's, you know, my books are fiction, but very therapeutic at the same time. Like I get to right. explore a lot. Yeah. Uh, I get to explore a lot of emotions in there, uh, in those books. But, um, but I hear from people all the time, those same things that, that you just described. And it's interesting because when you go downrange, you can do everything quote unquote, right from a mission yeah. planning process and on target, you do everything right to and from the target. You have all your mm -hmm. contingencies planned. You're at the top of your game. Like you've done everything quote unquote, right. If you're looking at something very sterile back in a mission planning space or something like that, and things can still go wrong because the enemy gets a vote and there's this thing called Murphy's law and things are going to go wrong and you need to adapt uh, to them. Um, so someone that did everything quote unquote, right can still be dealing with this depression, with that shame, with that guilt. Um, uh, it just because there are things that are beyond your control. Um, but yeah. what we can't control is how then we respond to those things. So, and it's tough. And I do, I believe that the first step is to say, this isn't who I am. Right. And I, I, this it's, if I could take away one thing from every PTSD sufferer, it'd be the trauma that caused the PTSD. But if I can't take that away, um, it would be the guilt because there is no reason to feel any guilt at all, right? If someone broke their leg and they're like, I just, I can't get over the guilt of breaking my leg. You'd be like, what? Um, but it's, it's this symptom of this thing that, you know, is impacting the neural pathways in our brain in a way that is normal and makes sense for what we've experienced. There is no reason to feel guilt over that. The only thing that I wish we could feel is, oh, I know what that is and what it looks like. And I know it can be fixed. So I'm going to go work on it. Um, because, you know, think about these amazing folks who come home and are dealing with this. Those are exactly the overachievers. Those are exactly the, the awesome, hardcore, amazing folks who have everything it takes to, to heal and to get better.
Um, and it's just that, that guilt that puts us in that spiral and we use alcohol to numb, which totally makes sense because we just want to turn it off. Um, but you know, there are ways to, to turn it off in a much more, um, healthy and, yeah. and permanent way, right. Yeah. Than to numb every night. Right. Right. And, and, uh, I mean, this wasn't that long ago and we're talking about 2019, um, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it didn't happen that, that long ago. Um, how did you find the person that, uh, eventually started talking to you about these things and, and helped you put them in the light that, that you look at them or through the lens you're looking at them through now and, um, get on the path to the book and all these sorts of things. Like, how did you find that person? Did you have to find a few different people that weren't right fits or did you just talk to someone who was like, wow, you are amazing. I'm going to, this is going to work. Let's, let's keep talking. Like, how did that, how did you find yeah. that person? I was one of the lucky few who experienced the latter, um, but I didn't find them. Uh, so <laughs> there's this, there's this tiny group in the FBI whose sole job is to assist American survivors of international terrorist events. Wow. That is their job. Um, so they were made aware of, of who I was and where I was and why I was there and when I would be back, um, you know, long before I had ever heard of them. And, uh, and they got in touch with me when I, when I got back to the U S and they're actually the ones who not only identified the symptoms that I was having and said, you know, I think that you are developing PTSD and, and you're going to need to see a trauma therapist, um, which I didn't even know what that was. I remember arguing with them and saying, I don't have PTSD. I'm not in the military. Like, what are you talking about? Um, you know, and, and obviously that's, I've, I've come a long way from that sort of naive belief. Um, but, but there was this weird element of, I don't deserve to have PTSD because I didn't fight the terrorists. Um, and it's a strange thing to say, right? Because who deserves PTSD? I would never wish that on anyone. Um, but I felt like I didn't have the right to have mental fallout after the fact. And, and that's part of the problem too. Like that's so wrong. Um, we don't, it is a host of biological, genetic, you know, um, cognitive factors that, that create a caustic cocktail of whether or not we develop PTSD. And you'll see some folks who've been through something far worse who don't develop it. Some people who've been through something um, that even they feel is kind of minimal and they do develop it. Um, that's just how it works, right? It's like saying like, you know, I don't have the right to have this cold. It's just absurd. <laughs> like you have it because you have it. Um, and they literally found a trauma therapist in my area, called and said to expect my call, um, called me to ensure that I made my first appointment, called me afterward to make sure that I enjoyed my first appointment and was planning to go back. And they're the ones who reimbursed the thousands of dollars that I spent out of pocket on my, on my therapy. No kidding. That is shocking that the federal government has something that works so efficiently. Like that's, that's unheard of. Like I think it's always really fun. I'm like the only person who gets to be like, I interacted with the FBI and every element of it was amazing. Yeah. I have nothing but like glowing <laughs> reviews for them. And truly like they're in my acknowledgements. I have nothing but glowing reviews for them. The FBI got my things back out of the hotel and brought them to me in my apartment in California and sat with me while I went through them sobbing, wow. you know, reliving this experience. Like I literally, I couldn't have wished for more. They were amazing. And, and, and my therapist, I think very much saved my life. So um, getting the right person who has the right training was, was a huge, huge element of why I was able to get better. That's incredible that that worked out <laughs> that way. You'd have to like hop around and didn't have a good fit with someone like that seems, wow, that's, that's incredible. And I won't read this whole thing right here, but uh, <laughs> it, this one, I, I usually, I was putting these little, these red marks around, you know, these, these things that were really poignant. Um, but then I underlined, this is the one that I underlined because it's, it resonated with me so much. Um, and you're talking about here how you uh, now you know people in the military and veteran security community, that sort of a thing. Um, and uh, they talk about 
how they blatantly disrespected authority and nonsensical rules. Like I underlined that part. Um, but although I think I had that healthy disrespect for authority well before I went to the military or went to Iraq or Afghanistan. Like I think that was just innate from an early age for, for whatever reason. But, uh, but it was interesting that you, you brought that up because I never looked at it really in terms of uh, developing that after a traumatic experience. Yeah, because um, uh, I think that I think what you probably knew at a time that I didn't know it yet was that um, people in places of authority say a lot of BS. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're not necessarily the expert on the topic they might be talking about. Um, And I love people who have a healthy disregard for that, a healthy disregard, right? Like, um, you know, can challenge it, can ask, well, why is that? Well, have you studied it? Well, what do you think about this? Um, and I was like the, my teacher said it, so I'm doing it. Don't question anything kid. Right. Mm -hmm. That hates to cause a conflict, hates to cause a problem. Um, and that just wasn't going to continue to work in my life because now I had to question everything and, and rebuild my identity and rebuild what I believed in and, and question every belief one at a time and see how I felt. So, yeah, it was, it was cool to see that in so many people I loved and respected and then try to build it in myself as well. Yeah, I think in the if, if for people who read read my books, they'll realize they're like probably going, ah, oh, now I see where it comes from. Uh, There's yeah. This, <laughs> yeah, maybe an unhealthy disrespect for authority in the novels, anyway, <laughs> and possibly in in my real life. Um, and once again, I'm not going to read this whole thing because I, it's, it's so powerful. I don't know if I can make it through the paragraphs. Um, and I want people to get the the book for sure, and then maybe gift it to people that are dealing with some sort of a traumatic experience, like. Um, for sure, this book can be so helpful um, because of the way you've you've handled this afterward and shared your story. Um, but uh, you're talking about in this paragraph where you think you just have minutes left to live, and you're thinking yeah. about the ways that you can go. Yeah, like sounds very morbid, obviously, to talk about now, but that is in yeah. the like because there are a few different ways that it could happen, and they're getting closer. You're mm-hmm. hearing gunshots. You think you're knowing what's what's happening. They're moving through this hotel. And just executing people, um, and you're thinking about that's where your mind is going. Yeah, yeah. I I don't mean to um, traumatize anyone who might be listening, but um, there was a point where I thought the only the only choice left to me in my life on this planet is how I die. That's it. That's the only thing. If I look for one last thing that I could have a say and that I could have any control over whatsoever, it'd be that. And I think very, in a very real way, I consider um, taking my life in that hotel to, to, I told you I'm stubborn, to steal that back from the terrorists because it was the last thing that I could do. It was the last show of my own dignity and independence and unwillingness to give in to this atrocity to, to be a statistic in, in their success. You know, I just, Oh, I couldn't, I just couldn't abide by that. I just couldn't let that happen. Um, and so, yeah, there's a point, you know, in that experience where I think I really, really think about taking my own life and, and that maybe that's the right thing to do at that point to, to take that away from them because I believed I was dead either way. Wow. I mean, and that one hit really hit home with me last night as I read this whole thing um, in that uh, I've written about it in a fictional sense, like that yeah. very thing. 
And then he shoot, yeah. read it, to read it from your perspective, I was like, oh, I mean, I was like, yeah, this is, it was an emotional night for me last night reading this book. It, it, no, no, it's, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, seriously, it's amazing. I've never read anything, anything like it. Um, and this is very interesting, interesting too, I think, because in the way you write this, I don't know if you meant to do it or not, because it's just so open and honest and, uh, it's, 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 um, it, 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 we're on this path, you know, with you as a reader, um, uh, is that you're, you're moving forward, even in the spot. I don't know if you you realize it or not, but I'm going to read this right here. And you say, I used to condemn violence publicly. Sure. But if I'm all the way honest with myself, wasn't there always another voice in the back of my head that one that used to ask, what if they deserve it? Or what, what would you have us do with people who rape and kill children, spare them of violence? No way. But I never acknowledged it, not really mentally and certainly not verbally, but now something had changed in my brain. Uh, the voices have switched places. The one that used to sit quietly in the recesses of my psyche is louder at the forefront. In fact, I can't hear the one that asks for mercy for criminals at all. I am not even sure it's still there. All I know is that at the end of the day, I don't wish that terrorists had been apprehended alive. I wish I could have seen them die. And I know that if asked, I would have helped to kill them. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of that experience of like having to critically examine every belief that I held and say, do I still believe this? Yeah. Had I ever critically examined it, you know, or was I just told um, violence is wrong and violence begets violence and there's never a reason for it and um, and and sort of taken that as as gospel and and move forward and with that belief in particular, the reason that I never had to examine it was because we live in this country, because I live in a country that is protected by, if you ask me, the best military in the world and some of the best service members in the world and police and firefighters and EMTs. And they keep me so safe on a daily basis. And I am so shielded. I have my blinders on from what they have to do and what they put on the line to do that, that I can sit in my house in Ohio and say, well, violence is wrong. And I, I don't think there's ever a reason for it. Right. And, it, and that is something that I think about every day now that I will never, ever take that freedom for granted. Not one second of my life anymore, because it is only due to our extraordinary level of service in this country that we don't have to examine a belief like that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's so powerful to hear it from you um, because it's something I, that I write about and think about uh, daily as well um, in mm -hmm. that, hey, in, in this country in particular, we have that luxury um, yes. to be able to say these things and to, uh, to live in our bubbles and to feel, feel safe for the most part unless something, something intrudes into that space um, violently you know, most times. And then... And then it brings us back to what most of human existence, for most of human existence, we had to deal with, which was defending our yes. gift of life. Um, exactly. And this gift of or defending our families, defending our tribe, defending our community. There was only, it's only been for a very short amount of human history where we could outsource that. We could call 911. We've had these okay. standing militaries and we've had a, a bill of rights and, and uh, we can feel s somewhat secure, um, uh, even be lulled into that false sense of security for most of us. Um, so I do think about that all the time, but to hear it from, from you and have that change occurring over this yes. 17 hours, oh man, that is powerful. And I think that that luxury can be 
I think it's such a shame that oftentimes that luxury becomes divisive, Mm -hmm. right? That then we can sit in our bubbles and, and say this or that is wrong or violence is wrong, or, you know, we we shouldn't, uh, violence never begets violence, things like that, that only exist and only can be this heated debate because of that luxury. And I, I just wish people would reel that back 10 steps and say, God, it's, it's hard for me to say without getting emotional that, that these men and women put their lives on the line so that we can sit in our bubbles and feel safe and not have to confront the reality of what they are willing to do or give to protect that. And, and I think that there should be something so unifying in that. Like, I never felt so acutely how deeply proud I am to be an American. And I feel it every day. I feel it every day and I fly my flag and, you know, I just, I'm just so proud. I said it, I said it, it's in the book. I yep. say, when I get out, it's a great day to be an American without the expletives. Yep. The book. I was going to read that uh, here. Cause it's uh yeah, I read that last night and I'm like, yes. Right. And I feel <laughs> that and I love that. I feel that. And I love that. I feel so patriotic and so proud to be part of, of, of this, you know, great experiment as, as we call it. And I just, I think there's something so unifying in that. I wish we didn't, use those blinders and that luxury to create divisiveness. I think that's such a sad symptom of, of, of the luxury that we have. Yeah. Hence the irony of, uh, you, exactly. <laughs> you, hence the irony. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't be able to feel that way if you were under this attack, uh, or it's just, it's, yeah, I do think about it quite, quite often. Uh, and once yeah, again, the books sure. are, the, <laughs> the books are therapeutic, even outside the military to explore these other, sure. other themes like that. Um, and I'm not going to read this one because, oh my goodness, it's just too, too, wow. too powerful. But what I did love when I was going through it is that two times, I think you mentioned the Navy SEALs, hoping the Navy SEALs come to rescue you. And I was like, yeah, yeah. all right. Yeah. But it wasn't the Navy SEALs. It was Christian <laughs> Craighead, one lone SAS operative who happens to be shopping on this, uh, this security assignment that he's on in Kenya and grabs his gear and oh. goes in. I mean, I mean, to be fair, I'd have taken anyone. <laughs> happily stoked to see the Navy SEALs, right? But um, obviously so, so thankful for him. I, it's one of those things. It's like hard to comprehend. How do you, how do you stand between a bunch of strangers who want to kill you for something you didn't do mm-hmm. and one amazing, crazy dude who wants to save your life for something you didn't do. Like, it's just, it's crazy. It, it's so, yeah, I, I just, you know, continue to to say this until I'm blue in the face, but reality is, is so much stranger than fiction. Yeah. And he had no idea there were Americans in there or British citizens in there or anything like that. He just knew that there was, that there was an, a terrorist attack and he was there and he ran, and, ran to the sound yeah. of the guns. I mean, there was, there was evil <sighs> and that was, yeah. I mean, you write about it right here. This is, this is so cool. Um, he read it to me and it describes how a British special forces soldier SAS was shopping nearby when he heard the explosion. Instead of running for cover, he grabbed his tactical gear and rifle out of his trunk, put it on and ran toward the attack, ran into the hotel. In fact, and started pulling innocent people out. He was one of the first responders on the scene. That means he was totally alone. No team, no backup, no briefing. He just followed his gut and his gut told him to go in there and save people. People like me, his gut told him to risk his life off duty to go save total effing strangers. <laughs> it's, I mean, and then you're right. I was wrecked. I just cried and cried. I couldn't put any of it into words, but it was just so unbelievable that one lone guy would do that. 
risk everything for me and the others. I cried and I held Paul's phone and zoomed in on the picture of this guy that the internet is now calling Obi-Wan Nairobi, yeah. <laughs> which seems pretty fitting since he was our only hope. And I wished I could reach through the screen and hug him, wished I could sob on his shoulder and thank him for what he did, what he saved, what he gave me in the world that day. Thank him for being the living proof that good can prevail over evil, that as much darkness as people can bring to the world, others can eradicate it with a single amazing act. We tried to learn more about him, but there isn't much online. So instead, we ordered a thermos that has the same logo that was on his backpack, Blackbeard's flag, and a patch that someone made in his honor because I like to feel like I'm keeping him close to me. I feel like I have these talismans that are a direct connection to him, then I'll be safe. How could I not if someone like that is nearby, if someone like that exists? I, I also just always want to remember that there are people like that out there. No matter how shitty and dark and scary this world gets sometimes, there are people like Obi-Wan Nairobi who run toward the sound of a terrorist attack. <sighs> Too cool. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's just incredible. I mean, we all saw those pictures uh, like the year after I posted those pictures with his face blurred out and his mask on. Yeah. I didn't even know him yet, you know, but I'm just, uh, I do these things where I, I uh, commemorate, commemorates a weird word for it, but uh, yeah. the history of these terrorist attacks over time, um, yeah. just so we don't forget them um, and learn from them, hopefully, and then apply those lessons going forward as wisdom. That is my yeah. hope. Although, um, we have not really done a great job at doing that. Um, but, uh, but then to meet him this last year, we got to spend some good time wow. together, uh, spent yep. a few hours together, uh, about two months ago and, uh, gosh, just such an, such an amazing guy. When you meet him, you're like, okay, now I get it. I mean, this humble guy, he's putting on his gear and he's running to the sound of the guns. Like that's who, who he is. Uh, just incredible. What an amazing person. Yeah. Incredible is, is absolutely the word. And it, it's almost I think for me, it was almost surprising that he's so humble and genuine yeah. when you meet him oh, yeah. and, and nice so and like nice. funny. Um, because I think I expected this like, um, steel action guy, like you might see in the movie, uh -huh. like, Oh, of course I ran in like, you know, right. that's, that's my duty, yep. you know, but he's like, he's just this real person. And it gives you this reminder that real people can do the extraordinary, like truly, truly do the extraordinary. And, and I think he's an extraordinary human who did the extraordinary, but he is a real person and he's humble and he's genuine and he's kind. And, and you think about the tally from that day, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of lives saved hundreds. And that's one day in his career. You know, I, it just, yeah. What is more meaningful than that in a world where it so often feels like we've lost the thread of meaning, yeah. like, you know, I just, there's nothing, there's nothing more meaningful than that. There's probably no cooler guy on the planet in my humble opinion. Yeah. Um, just amazing. I get just it. Amazing. And I hope more people are going to get to meet him because, you know, now, oh. especially after an event like this, that's so publicized, um, yeah. I mean, the story of what happens to him after this, his story before this is incredible. And then yeah. even after, uh, is, is amazing. And I think it's still going through their department of defense review process, or maybe we're getting close to the end. I'm not exactly, exactly sure where that stands, but at some point, um, there will be, you know, his perspective on this and then companion reads his with this, like, you know, that's going to be a, a, seeing it from those two perspectives is going to be uh, pretty powerful. That's uh yeah, I tell him that a lot. I think in a way we're sort of two sides of of the same coin yeah. on that day. Um, but I hope that for 
him or for anyone who serves their country. Like this is a reminder of why you do what you do. They're real people whose lives are being saved. And that's the thing is like, you, you know, this well, you, you didn't expect anything when you served, right. He didn't expect anything in return when, when he went in that day. Um, and, and what you're protecting is beautiful in a hypothetical sense, right. The freedom and, and everything that America stands for. Um, and, and, you know, he's, he's from the UK, everything that, that Western freedom stands for. Um, but I, I love to remind him that there's also a tangible piece at the end of it. There, there are these like, you know, and I'm just one of the hundreds of people he saved that day that are sitting around being like, oh my God, did you see the photos of this guy who came and saved us? Right. And I, I think that's extraordinary. I think what it says about, about the SAS, which I, I didn't know well before this is amazing. What it says about our, our men and women who serve is amazing. Like I just, yeah. What, what a thing to do to put your life on the line with no regard for yourself or your safety to protect freedom and, and the people who enjoy that freedom every day. Yeah. And that's him. That is him. And there's another passage once again, it's too powerful to even read. So I'm not going to read it. People are going to have to get the book to read it and they, they (laughs) should. Um, but there's so many uh, like poignant paragraphs in here that are just so deep and, uh, and, you know, obviously you wouldn't have been able to write them had you not gone through what you went through. Um, but you write the human condition is inherently defined by the spectrum of good and evil. What's truly extraordinary is that that day I stood physically in between the extremes. Above me, men I didn't know held hostages and threatened their lives after having killed and ravaged innocent and unarmed civilians. They would kill me too, instantly, without regret, if given half a second to do so. On my floor and below me were strangers, total strangers to me, who had rushed into this nightmare to save my life, save all of our lives. The most terrifying experience I could ever have imagined, and they'd entered voluntarily. Men and women like that are what keep this whole world from going to shit. I cannot put into words the gratitude I feel for all the soldiers, British, American, Kenyan, who worked together to save us that day. And I will never forget, for as long as I live, that the human condition is a spectrum. And every single one of us has to choose, very carefully and very consciously, where we are going to fall on that spectrum. Like that, that's beautiful, it is poignant, it is powerful, um, and that could never have been written anybody else. Incredible. Thank you. I should have had you do my audio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, yeah. I'll stick to the writing part, the, the audio, voice, the, the narration part. That's tough. I, those guys that yeah. do that, the people that do that are so talented. Oh my gosh. I, I have to agree. I actually, I actually did do my audio. Oh, okay. um, I did. Wow. But, How was that? What was it, that experience like? It gave me a sense of exactly what you're saying. This is a really difficult yeah. job. The people who do this are amazing. I think for me, because, um, because the book is so personal and, and it is my experience and it is nonfiction. Um, I had a lot of people saying, you know, I, I really think it should be in your voice. And I had someone put it well, which was, uh, and you've, you've read it right. There are these moments of, of levity and laughter that are almost inappropriate, right? <laughs> it's like, you have to find a way to laugh through the pain sometimes. Um, and someone said, it's a good thing you did your audiobook because no one else could have made those jokes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was right. You know? And so, so I did do it, but, um, I made the terrible choice to do the whole audiobook in one day. Oh, wow. So I did it in one, yeah, one like very, very long day. Yeah. Um, but I am, I'm glad it's in my voice and I hope I never have to narrate another one. Yeah. Like, how did you hold it together doing that? I asked, I had a country music guy on not too long ago uh, on the podcast. And I always wanted to ask these performers like that that have deeply personal songs that get yeah. like the listener emotional 
And they do yeah. it night after night on the road. Uh, and if it's not something that somebody else wrote for them, but has a touch point with their personal life, I asked him like, how do you do that? And he's like, hey, someone paid to be there for me to perform. <laughs> and not see me lose it on stage. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm going to give them that. So he put it in that. And I thought, oh, that's it. That's really interesting. Because um, I didn't know if I could could do that. Um, so yeah. how did you hold Like, how did you, how did you do that? Did you compartmentalize things? Or did you like, I'm a narrator today? No. Or does it, I mean, it's such an emotional thing for anyone to read. I can't imagine what that must have been like for you to read the whole thing out loud, recorded for the, narr- the audiobook. You'll find that I don't really compartmentalize. I'm a real, yeah. <laughs> I am literally an open book. Um, but I think, I think I couldn't have done it in 2019 or even 2020. Yeah. So I was lucky that there was some time in between, but really reading it, um, was this cathartic experience for me. It was, it was looking back on what I had gone through and how much it hurt, um, and feeling some distance from it that, that was comforting to be like, wow, I was hurting so much at that time. And I don't feel that way today. And that's a beautiful thing. And I'm so happy to think that, that I don't feel that way anymore and that I have come a long way from that. So there was, there was that element. Um, and then I just have to give a shout out to the amazing studio where I, where I recorded it, um, which was storyteller sound in Charlotte. And, uh, it's run by this amazing husband and wife and they were so supportive. They were so wonderful. They had no idea why I was there or what I was there to record. Yep. They knew I had booked the studio for the day and I think they knew it was an audio book and I'll never forget arriving. And they said, um, what's the name of the book you'll be recording. And I said, terrorist attack girl. And they said, excuse me. Uh (laughs) And then I went into the booth and I was, you know, it it opens with a, a lot of the, the tough, you know, part of the event itself is like right in the beginning of the book. And so I'm, I'm recording that and, uh, they come over the speaker in the booth and they say something like, um, I'm sorry, is this a true story? And I said, oh yeah, it is. And they said, (laughs) they said, was that actually you? And I just, I just cracked up laughing. I was like, yes, you know, it's, it's, this is, is the real story of what happened to me and, and reality is stranger than fiction. Um, and they were just, they were so, I think moved by that, but so supportive, right. They'd come in and there were times when I'd get emotional and they'd have to come in and say, um, you might want to record that line one more time. It's a bit difficult to understand you because you can hear the emotion in your voice, but there are also times if you listen to the audiobook, I am emotional. Yeah. Um, and that's just the truth of the matter, right. Especially when I talk about the impact that, that the day had on my family is still, you know, still really gets me. So, wow. yeah. Uh, usually but, I don't do audiobooks just cause I'm a reader, uh, but I'm going to get this one for sure. Oh, I'm, so I'm going to get this. Uh, I'm getting the audiobook for sure. As soon as we're off here. Um, <laughs> oh, and uh, yeah, cause it's, oh my gosh, it just, it, yeah. Cause it's so one of, one I want to support, but two, it's uh, it, it, to hear this in anybody else's voice. wouldn't, wouldn't, it, I don't know. It seems like it's so right that you, I think you so. read this. Um, and I don't want to keep you too long. Cause I, cause I know this is so, I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, emotional for you to talk about these things and relive these things, mm-hmm. but I think it's, it's, uh, it's so important that you did this and I'm so glad that you did, um, cause you're gonna help so many people. But, uh, this one thing I want to read here, uh, really spoke to me also because of my touch point with preparedness. And that comes from just, mm-hmm. uh, well before the military, it was just, once again, one of those things was innate in me from an early age. But you're right. I have reversed my lifelong stance that I would never allow guns in my house. I used to fear them. Used to worry that if we had one in the house, it would inevitably end up being part of some tragic accidents, a child's life lost in the process. Guns were this over-the-top, completely unnecessary possession, which would be replaced with baseball bats if the motive for owning them was really self-defense. Suddenly, however, that phrase that I had always heard and dismissed as trite held real meaning. The bad guys will have guns. You have to be able to protect yourself. 
The bad guys did, in fact, have guns. I had seen them. I had wanted nothing more than a weapon for those 17 hours on that bathroom floor. A gun in my hand would have changed the entire experience. It would have given me back some power. It would have given me some hope. So instead of continuing to fear firearms, I learned everything I could about handling guns, how to aim by looking down the sights, how to breathe as you pull the trigger and ensure the shot goes off nice and straight, how to take a gun apart, how to clean it, how to check very quickly to see whether or not there's a bullet in the chamber, etc. I wanted to feel like if a bad guy even thought about coming in, Paul and I were protected, given that we were both comfortable with and knowledgeable about firearms. Yeah. Tools. Yes, exactly. And it's another one of those beliefs that I had heard and internalized without deeply thinking through, you know, it was like, Oh, guns are dangerous. And if you have them in the house, inevitably it's going to lead to a horrible accident. And I was like, well, yeah, I don't want that. (laughs) And that was the extent of, of my, you know, less than critical thinking about that topic. And, and I very much feel how you said, you know, these are tools and I don't believe in having irrational fears of anything in life. You know, I, I was afraid of the ocean. So I got scuba diving certified. I was afraid of heights. So I jumped out of a plane and I was afraid of guns. So I learned about them and I learned how to be safe and, and respect the deadly power of them. Right. And, and understand how to have them in my home safely. So yeah, they're a tool hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, to be able to take a breath and recognize that and be prepared. But once again, if we were living 300 years ago, a thousand years ago, but <laughs> we wouldn't have a choice. Uh, like right. you would, if you want to protect your life, you need to use the tools that are necessary to protect your family. In fact, it's a responsibility. Uh, and I think yeah. of it as a responsibility to protect this gift that I was given, this life that I was given, um, to say nothing of the responsibility to protect my children, the, my spouse, uh, it, this innate responsibility to protect a community and a country, that, that sort of thing. But at the base level, protecting this this gift of life and then those those little ones that can't protect them themselves. I mean, it's, uh, it's always felt like a responsibility responsibility. Um, but one thing, there was a, there's a few funny things in, in this book also, um, like you talked about <laughs> one is that you got a bill from the hotel for $40 after you get back. Like, Oh man. Yes, I did. That is insane. <laughs> I actually, it was a whole day because I thought my credit card had been compromised. I saw this like crazy charge from some company I didn't recognize that I could tell was, um, international, and it was, you know, well after I had been traveling and I was like, shoot, man, someone got a hold of my credit card numbers. I'm on the phone with a company and they're asking me if I was in a hotel in Nairobi in January. And I'm like, uh, yeah, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> and it turns out that this charge was, you know, for, uh, I think the meals that I had charged to my room while I was there, uh, up to literally breakfast that I had had the morning of the terrorist attack. And I was like, Man, some people have no shame. I mean, crazy, you know, probably it's one of these systems in place, but like, you know, like, I exactly. mean, so insane that you get a bill insane. after this, yeah. this whole thing. Uh, and then there's the other- And I paid it. <laughs> I was like, oh, I did, I did eat there you that go. There you go. Oh my gosh. Uh, and then there's the one, there's, uh, if you come downstairs, somebody starts playing one of the Kenyan security force people <laughs> playing Star Wars on their, yeah. on their phone. And, uh, you know, that goes back to, and then you have the Obi-Wan Nairobi thing later. So it all kind of full circle. Like it's just, it, oh. it's so wild. Um, and, uh, and I do want to read 
two more things here. It dawned on me for the first time somehow that there had to have been other men up there, up on the top floor, who had been dodging explosions and bullets. There had to have been other men who had ultimately taken the lives of the terrorists and saved our lives, saved my life. But then as I listened to the details that were being reiterated to me, I realized something even more astounding. There had been one man, one off-duty SAS operator who had been the first responder to the scene, and then for a long time, the only responder. It was him showing up that had driven the terrorists to cease their systematic executions and retreat to their fallback positions. This one man had literally pressed pause on the murders of innocent civilians with his willingness to intervene. One extraordinarily brave man who happened to, as he would say later, have been training for this my whole life. One man who had led every single action that was taken against the terrorists. One man who was responsible for their demise. One man who hadn't even donned ear protection or eye protection in his haste to save us, and who had assumed that he would be advising the responders who were sure to be on site. When he found, when, but when he found no one there, hadn't even hesitated for beginning to clear the buildings. It was bizarre, but only as bizarre as the day itself had been. And more importantly, it was true. His name is Christian Craighead. And like his Star Wars theme nickname implies, he had been our only hope. I mean, too cool. I remember every time I think about that, I remember, um, oh, sorry. I remember early in the attack being on the phone with Melissa Mm -hmm. and I kept saying, I don't understand. Isn't anyone coming to help us? Like, this is just going to happen. It's just going to go this way and everyone's going to watch them execute us. That's, that's where we are. And so to see those photos of him later in his balaclava and, and to, to get to understand that, that he goes in by himself. It's, it's literally like if you could watch those two scenes unfolding at the same time, side by side, right. It's literally, I'm on my bathroom floor crying saying, isn't anyone coming to help us? And he is starting to clear buildings by himself. And so it's just, I mean, like, I can't, I I wrote him a, I wrote him a letter when I got to meet him and I tried to put into words what he gave back to me and, and the ripple effect of that. I tried to say, look, you didn't just save me. You kept my brother from losing his sister and you kept my parents from losing a child and you kept my fiance from losing his wife and, and every single person that I know and love you, you gave them something back that day and then multiply that by 700, right? Cause that's how many people you saved. I just, I don't know how you could ever put that into words. What, what that means. Yeah, I just, it's like grateful is this absurdly inferior term. I need a better one. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a word. Uh, It's the experience and the story tells it, tells it all. Um, Incredible. Um, So what about this app you developed? What's this all about? Yes, that's part of the ripple effect. I try to tell him that too. Um, So I I mentioned briefly that... um, the FBI found my therapist. Um, it was very expensive. I think I was paying something like $450 an hour. Um, most of which was not covered by insurance, uh, as is, is fairly standard for mental health care in the United States. And, um, and when I got better, I thought this treatment makes sense, right? I think there's this belief. Uh, I certainly had it that you go into this office and your therapist like does some sort of black box, black box magic. And you walk out healed and no one else could have done it. And it's like a super top secret magical thing. 
but everything that I was asked to do in therapy made sense. It was like, you know, you've developed this neural pathway that is not uh, correct and it's not serving you correctly. And that's why you can't turn off your fight, flight, or freeze response. And here's how we're going to reduce that response so that you don't feel afraid to leave your apartment. It like literally A to Z made sense. Um, and my therapist would say, you're the one doing all the hard work. Um, I am on this journey with you as your guide. Right. And so I was, I was months after I completed therapy, I was on a plane and I was talking to my husband and I was saying, um, so many people just don't have access to the guide. Mm. They're willing to do the work, but they don't have the guide because it's expensive because it's hard to find because at this point, everybody is booked solid and no one's taking patients anymore. Um, and he, he looked me dead in the face and, and as is like classic Paul, he looked at me and he was like, so build the guide. And I was like, you can't build the guide. Um, but ultimately we did build a version of the guide. And, and what I wanted to do was give people who have no option an option. That's all. Therapy is amazing. It is gold standard. If you have a therapist and you click with them and it's working like power to you, hundred percent, my therapist saved my life. Love it. If you can't afford it or you can't access it, or you're not ready to talk to someone now you have an option if you have PTSD. Um, so that's, that's what I did. I worked with clinicians from around the world and leaned on my love for technology and what it can do for people as a lifeline. Um, and I just wanted to build something that was cheap and infinitely accessible. You're never going to hit a wait list. If you need something today, you can have something today. Um, so the app is called trauma brace and it's, it's on iPhone, uh, everywhere. I think we have downloads from like 16 different countries now, which is, is really amazing. Um, but also shows the need, which is crazy. Um, and it, it just gives you tools that you can use yourself in a self-help fashion to start to try to process what happened and, and start that process of getting better. Um, and I have to, I have to mention right now that, um, we're in the process of getting it translated into Ukrainian, um, so that we can give it away to all the refugees and survivors, um, who like me, you know, ended up being caught up in somebody else's fight and, and seeing horrific things as, as a product of that. Um, except unlike me, it's in their home. So we just, yeah. In addition to our amazing, you know, military personnel, veterans, um, a, a big component of the folks we see using the app is, um, uh, rape survivors and sexual assault survivors. Um, and then we also wanted to, to make sure to give an option to, um, Ukrainian refugees and survivors. So that's what we're trying to do. Amazing. I mean, turning something so traumatic into a positive and once again, you're just, you're, you're, you're having such an influence on so many different people, probably that you, you know, you may not have had working at Google or, uh, you know, on that path that, that you were on. Um, and you mentioned a few times in the book uh, that you wanted to write a novel. Uh, and, and you actually mentioned the irony of now you have a book on shelves yeah. because of this experience. Um, but uh, uh, what was it about? Are you still writing it? Or is that still something that you're, you're doing? Or what's, uh, what, what's this story with the novel? I did write, I did write a novel um, that I've never shared and, and probably won't unless I rework it considerably. I think I'm a better nonfiction writer than, than a fiction writer. Um, but I was, <laughs> you'll never believe this. No one's actually, actually asked me this, but you'll never believe this. It was about terrorism. No way. Um, it was about domestic terrorism. And um, 
sort of the way that patriotism was being corrupted and, and beginning to fall apart. And it was me really trying to explore that idea, as you said, to process um, what I felt like as an American who sometimes thinks America can do better, but also thinks it's like the greatest place on earth um, and and trying to to unravel that and, and work through it, um, which is just absolutely absurdly hilarious. If you think about, you know, then I literally literally write a nonfiction piece about about surviving international terrorism and and coming back to this sense of deep, acute patriotism. So uh, yeah, it's life is so weird. <laughs> that is crazy. Did um have you gone back to it since, like over the past year or so, and reread it or edited it or anything like that? No, actually, I haven't. I I have this idea that I would would love to one day, um, but my my work on trauma brace uh, and and with Teresa Tuckerell, you know, usually takes takes over each day, um, which I'm so thankful for it. I love, you know, I especially love when people reach out and they are like, I read this book and it meant this to me and and it changed my life. Um, or, you know, that's doesn't, doesn't change everyone's life. I just, some people really connect yeah. with it and that's amazing. Um, but I should, I should get back to it. I think I would probably heavily disagree with a oh, lot of it now, which would be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that's, you'd be interesting to have it, you know, have it as it is now and then yeah. how it is after you spend, let's say whatever a few months on it or a year, however long it takes to go through it with the red pen and, uh, and yep. change it based on, or edit it based on your, now your personal experience. Uh, you can even yeah. release them as companions, uh, together, like a two yeah. box set, the before and after. Um, right. but, uh, it'd be interesting if you, uh, if you go back and, and let me know if you go back and take a look, uh, and take a look at it. Uh, uh I might know a couple of well, people, okay. but, uh, that'd be very interesting to read a book like that from the perspective of someone who went through what you, what you did and then what you maybe what I should do is just mark it up and then publish, publish the, my response to it now. Yeah, there's like, a lot, a lot, a lot creatively you can do there. That is, that is for sure. But, uh, yeah, amazing. I mean, this is going to resonate with everyone, um, uh, because it is so powerful. Um, and I want to read one last sentence here, uh, because this is, this is really spoke to me as well. And you said, uh, I used to think it's what you do in your most most terrified moments that defines you. Now I know it's what you choose to do afterward. That right there, that is powerful. And everybody, regardless of situation in life, can identify with that and learn from that um, because that's what life's about: getting up and moving, moving, moving forward in a in a way that's positive to those around you and make a makes a difference to those in in however big or small your circle might be. So. Thank you for writing this. Oh my gosh. And thank you for spending so much time today. I mean, I really appreciate you doing this um, and, uh, and sharing this and uh, gosh, I'm, hopefully we can meet up in person one day, but also looking forward to reading yeah. Christian Craighead's book when that comes out and read like, look what was going on here. And then look what he's saying he was doing here. Right. I mean, what an experience. Jeez. I cannot wait to read his book. So I'm right there with you. And I, I think it's, amazing to, to be here and to get to talk about these things and, and to look at, you know, post-its in my book that you read is just, it's so humbling. And yeah, I'm so thankful for, for your time. And I really do hope we get to meet up in person one day. Yep. So. As do I. And like, like I said, people are looking, you can see all the yellow stickers. I, I, I read like half of them uh, because otherwise we'd be here too long um, and, and they'd be too powerful for me to even get through. So, uh, so thank you so much and, and uh, take care and uh, reach out if you ever need anything. Too. Thanks so much. Take Navy Federal Credit Union. I've actually been a member since 1996, the year that I joined the Navy. 
And Navy Federal Credit Union wants to thank the men and women in the U.S. military for their important commitment to our country. For more than 85 years, Navy Federal Credit Union has made it their mission to help people in the military community. Navy Federal Credit Union is open to all branches of the military, veterans, and their families. Navy Federal's employees are veterans and military spouses, so they're part of the community they serve, and they understand their members better than anyone. Members can enjoy an average earning and savings of $352 per year, a savings rate three times the industry average. An average credit card, APR 5% lower than the industry average, award-winning 24-7 stateside member service over 350 branches worldwide. Show your own support for our troops with hashtag Mission Military Thanks. Learn more about how Navy Federal is celebrating the commitment that connects them to their members at NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. And I also have to read that this is insured by NCUA. Dollar value represents the results of the 2020 Navy Federal Member Give Back Study. Value claim based on Navy Federal's 2020 Member Give Back Study. Credit card value claim based on 2020 Navy Federal as low as APR averages compared to advertised industry APR averages as of December 31st, 2020, published on creditcards.com. Thanks so much. Check out NavyFederal.org. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one in the Amazon series adaptation of the terminal list. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's coffee. Keep crushing. Today's gear segment is sponsored by Zero Foxtrot. Zero Foxtrot provides unique products that reflect the old school vintage military lifestyle. I've actually been following these guys for a while. Love what they're doing. Have a bunch of other shirts and coffee mugs downstairs from from the last few years. Just love it when guys get out and absolutely crush it. Zero Foxtrot is veteran founded and is a proud supporter of our nation's defenders, veterans, and first responders. Actually wearing this shirt, look at that, Canoe Club USA. What does that mean? I think you're going to have to look it up in your web browser, the Google machine. Canoe Club USA, awesome shirts out there. They have limited edition ones that drop every now and again that are super cool. So definitely go to zerofoxtrot.com. And right now, we have an exclusive code for listeners of Danger Close. Use code JC at checkout for 20% off your order. Very cool. Remember, you can gear up with Zero Foxtrot and use code JC at checkout for 20% off your order. Just go to zerofoxtrot.com slash JC and remember to use code JC for 20% off at checkout or just click the link in the description. Once again, that offer code is JC. Gear up with Zero Foxtrot and use code JC for 20% off. Awesome. Definitely do that and check out all they have going on. Follow them on the social channels. They have some great things out there. They do some history posts every now and again that are really cool and very well thought out. Definitely check out zerofoxtrot.com for all the stuff. They have Zippo lighters in there. They have these mugs right here. What does that say? Drink coffee, stack bodies. 
stay zero. Love this. And then this one right here, this is cool. This might be a limited edition one. I'm not sure. Um, but for St. Patrick's Day, lack fear, not beer. Look at that. Boom. Love it. Awesome. So that's what they look like right there. Zero Foxtrot. Let me get a little of that action right there. That's a sticker. But uh, check out their t-shirts, mugs right here. Whiskey glasses. These are some of my favorites right there. Look at that. Oh, yeah. Solid. So check them out for sure. Zerofoxtrot.com slash JC for 20% off. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. All right. Everybody needs a Swiss Army knife. Why? Just because. And these ones right here are commemorative limited edition ones. This one was from 2021. It's orange. And this one is 2022 right here. And uh, these are pretty cool. And I have a 2019, I think was green uh, around here somewhere, but uh, I need to go find that. I think I missed a, a couple of years in there, but uh, you need one. And if you lose them, hey, it's not the end of the world. They're not, uh, not crazy expensive, extremely useful. And those of us who grew up with MacGyver obviously are quite familiar with the Swiss Army knife. Although in many cases, even back then, it was obvious that it would have been extremely helpful and more efficient had he had a firearm. But uh good to couple the firearm with a Swiss army knife. Uh, these ones here, let's see, got the screwdriver on that one and a little, uh, <laughs> little wine opener right there. So what's more important to me today? Probably this one as I'm writing. And they also have some starter kits right here. So, uh, that one is for our little guy. I'll be giving this to him after I'm done with this podcast segment, obviously, but just helpful to have a Swiss army knife on hand and they're fun, especially to give as gifts. And once again, if you lose one, it's not the end of the world. So Swiss Army Knives, thumbs up. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad Original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Maylee Chapin, you can follow her on Instagram at Maylee Chapin, and that is M-E-Y-L-I-C-H-A-P-I-N. Follow her on Instagram there. Be sure and pick up Terrorist Attack Girl. Get the book and then get the audiobook, which is what I am going to do as soon as I finish recording this because Maylee narrates it as you just heard on the podcast. So uh, I am looking forward to that. That's going to be a powerful listen. But get the book, get the audiobook, and her app is called the Trauma Brace app. So you can find that in the app store. Christian Craighead, of course, is Christian underscore Craighead. You can follow him on Instagram and uh, find out all that he has going on and what's upcoming for him. If you like this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. Officialjackcar.com is the website. JackCarUSA.com is the merch. And in the blood, my next novel in the James Reese saga is coming in hot on May 17th audio ebook and hardcover and is available for pre-order now wherever you get your books. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is sincerely appreciated. Take care, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. In case you 
missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm-hmm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy and, or right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm-hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.